Um, cities around the world are often named after famous people, right? Um, our city, De Urban, named after Mr. De Urban, right? Peter Marisburg, named for Peter Maritz. Uh, Pretoria, named for Mr. Andres Pretorius. Um, and then other, other cities just don't have the imagination, like Cape Town. <laughs> right? We're on a cape. It is a town. Hey, let's call it Cape Town. Um, but there are some interesting ones. So Benoni, anyone know who Benoni is named after? It's actually biblical. It's after, named after Benjamin, one of the tribes of Israel, uh, and the Hebrew name for Benjamin is Benoni. And it's named for that. I didn't know. Who knew? Um, how about P.E., Port Elizabeth? Named for? Queen Elizabeth. No. I, I, I assumed it was Queen Elizabeth. I mean, I didn't even bother looking because, of course, it's named for Queen Elizabeth. I mean, Queen Elizabeth I, probably. But actually, it's named for someone called Elizabeth Donkin. Elizabeth Donkin. Some of you know someone called Donkin. Maybe it's a family relation. I don't know. L Elizabeth Donkin, who was an actress. I mean, I don't know, of all the people that you'd name your city after. Anyway, um, of course, there are lots of Alexandrias named after Alexander the Great. Uh, there's one or two cities called Philippi, named after Alexander's dad, Philip the Macedonian. There are a couple of queen's towns around the world, most of them named for a queen. We don't really know which one. I'm guessing most of them for Queen Victoria. She was a popular queen to name things after back in the day. There are a couple of Kingstons as well, where you've got to figure out, well, which king? Um, but, but there you go. Back in the day as well, in the Bible the times, the cities were named after, after important or significant people. Um, and one of those places was a place called Caesarea. In fact, there were quite a few Caesareas named after Caesar. Caesar. Which Caesar? Anyone. Julius. No, because here's the thing, right, that, that Caesar was a title. It was like king. Um, and so there were lots of Caesars. Julius Caesar, Nero Caesar, uh, Hadrian Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And most of the Caesareas were actually named for Caesar Augustus. He was the big name. He was the big dude. He was very proud of himself. He had a whole bunch of statues erected in his own name. And he had on the plinth a list of all his accomplishments. And they were erected all over the Roman Empire so that everybody could know just how wonderful Augustus was. We're going to read about Caesarea in Acts chapter 11 this morning. Um, and uh, Caesarea that we're going to read about was built by Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the guy who was in charge when Jesus was born. It was named after Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar who was in charge when Jesus was born. Um, it's on the Mediterranean coast. It's still there today. It's a fairly wealthy city called Quesarea or something to those effect. That effect. Um, it became back then the administrative center of the province of Judea. It was a Roman town on the edge of Judea. It was the place where Roman and Jew met and interacted and conducted business but kept themselves separate because Jews did not want to have too much interaction and too much contact with Gentiles lest being in contact with them would make them unclean. It, it is, it's been said that um, Caesarea was the place where the Jewish war started in AD 66. That's going to happen about 25 years after what we're reading this morning. Um, it was the moment when, when the Jews rebelled against Roman occupation. The Romans then killed 20,000 people in the city of Caesarea. 25 years after what we're about to read. The city of Jerusalem gets destroyed. The Jews get kicked out of the country. And the Romans put up a sign, no Jews allowed to enter this place on pain of death. Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's quite a long chapter and there's a lot of stuff going on. But let me just give you a quick outline of what's going on in the chapter. It starts with a guy called Cornelius. And he is the, 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 an officer in the Italian regiment. So the Roman army was made up of a whole bunch of, of soldiers from all over the world. The Romans would come, they'd conquer a nation, and they'd absorb the conquered nation's army into their own. And so there's all sorts of nationalities that make up the Roman army. But to be part of the Italian regiment, that means that you were born in Italy. You're part of the original guys. You're the real Romans. 
And to be an officer in that very elite regiment puts you a cut above everyone else. This is a, a big deal. So Cornelius is right at the top of the shiny pole of military excellence in the admin center of a place, in, in a place called Judea in this town of Caesarea. What's interesting to note, and we won't, we won't meet them here now, but what's interesting is that Philip, the evangelist, we read about him a couple of weeks ago, is also in Caesarea. And we read two weeks ago that when Saul of Tarsus had to get kicked out of Jerusalem for making too much noise, he also goes to Caesarea. And so this becomes quite a, quite a hotbed spot in the world. And so what's come somewhat unusual about this guy Cornelius is that he's somehow drawn to this Jewish faith. He likes the idea of one God instead of multiple idols. He's become an observer, at the very least, at the local synagogue. He, he's studying the Hebrew scriptures. He, he's called a God-fearer and is actually giving money to the poor. Um, and one afternoon, while Cornelius is doing who knows what, an angel appears to him. And Cornelius He's terrified. He's absolutely terrified to see this guy in shining white. And the guy in shining white says to Cornelius, you need to go and call for a guy called Peter. <coughs> and Peter is staying down the coast at Joppa in the house of Simon the Tanner. Go and call him. And so Cornelius does that. He sends a couple of guys down to Joppa where we last saw Peter last week at the end of chapter 9. And um, a couple of guys go down to Joppa to fetch Peter. While they're on the way, the very next day, they're on the way down the road to Joppa. Peter is in the house of Simon the Tanner. It's a little bit stinky because tanners use some very unpleasant things to make their leather soft. And so Peter goes up onto the roof to get a bit of fresh air and to pray. And he does what many of us do when we're praying. Our minds wander. Ever done that? You're praying, oh Lord Jesus, and your mind is just like... Mm. And Peter's up on the roof and he's busy praying and his mind starts to wonder because he's going, oh, I'm hungry. Mm. Ever had that kind of prayer where you're praying and your stomach rumbles and you're like, mm, I wonder what's in the kitchen? I wonder what's in the cupboard? And while Peter's thinking about what's in the cupboard, he has this, this vision, right? And this tablecloth comes down from heaven and he's like, I'm hungry. There's a tablecloth. Awesome. <laughs> Donuts. Um, you know, what else is on there? Rusks, I don't know. And this tablecloth appears and drops down in front of him. And he looks at this tablecloth and there are, there's a, there's a prawn curry going. Okay? And there's nice, fresh uh, lobsters just bubbling away nicely with a little bit of garlic butter. There's a nice, fresh, suckling piglet with an apple in his mouth. And this voice from, the, there's, there's, there's a little roast bunny not like bunny chow, but like literally a rabbit. Um, and, and this voice from heaven says, get up and eat. And Peter does exactly what Peter always does. No, I won't. It's kind of Peter's standard response all the time, isn't it? No. And Peter's like, I'm never, I, Lord, I've never eaten a prawn curry. And I'm, never gonna, I'm not going to start now. That's unclean. Because everything that he sees in this tablecloth is considered unclean food by the Jews. And Peter says, not touching it, not going anywhere near it. I'm going to stay pure and holy. Um, and God has to say to him, Peter, don't you call unclean what I've made clean. And in doing that, and this could be a whole sermon on itself, but we're not going to go down this path. But, but in doing that, God effectively says to Peter, listen, man, this is what this chapter is actually about. That all the, the traditions and all the culture and all those various food laws and, and all that kind of stuff from the Old Testament is basically out the window. And, and he's, God is saying to Peter, listen, listen, holiness is not found in what you eat. It's not found. So if, if you don't eat bacon, that's fine. I don't understand you, but I get it, right? If you don't want to eat bacon, if you don't want to have bacon milkshake and bacon sundaes and whatever else, fine. Um, and, and you're welcome to say, I don't like it, I don't like the taste, uh, but don't come and tell me that you don't eat bacon for religious reasons. Because in doing that, you're violating the gospel. It's not for religious reasons that we stop eating pork. So, you know, indulge. <laughs> Enjoy your pork. We bought a nice pork fillet yesterday. They're on sale at Bluff Meat Supplies, so feel free. Um, and, and, and really what, what starts to happen in this chapter is that, that and in the coming chapters in Acts, is that all those Old Testament laws are fulfilled in Jesus. And it gets to Acts chapter 15, where we start to debate, well, which laws should we keep for the Gentiles' sake? And ultimately, they decide to keep two laws. Out of the whole, all the list of laws in the Old Testament, they decide to keep two. 
don't eat meat that's been strangled to death and avoid sexual immorality. Those are the two. That's it. Thou shalt not get a tattoo. Well, we can debate that. Um, so, so, so part of what's going on here is that, listen, you don't need to be culturally Jewish in order to become a follower of Jesus because that's what it had been up until now. We'll, we'll get there later. Um, and so, so Peter has this vision and he's trying to figure out what the meaning of this vision is and a voice, the Spirit of God speaks to him and says, listen, you're about to get a knock on the door, answer it and let them in. And you know, three seconds later, and Peter goes downstairs, opens the doors, and there's three Gentiles standing on the veranda. And Peter goes, well, I was expecting you, and you're unclean, but you better come in. And Peter welcomes in Gentiles into his home, well, not into his home, into Simon the Tanner's home, and does something that Jews would never do, has Gentiles come into the house and sit down and have a meal and spend the night. The next day, they head off to, um, back to see where Cornelius is, and uh, they arrive in Caesarea, and they open the door, and, and, and Cornelius has no idea who this Peter is. He's just been told, go and get him. So Peter walks through the door, and Cornelius falls down on his knees, starts to worship Peter, and Peter's like, hey man, I'm just another dude, just like you. Get up off your feet. You don't need to worship me. We worship in Jesus. And, and, he, and, and Peter says, to be honest, I don't even know why I'm here. I have no idea. You sent me a message. I came, but I, I don't even know what you want. And it's at that point that we're going to read this morning um, from Acts chapter 10, from halfway through verse 38, I think. No, no, not halfway through 38. 28. Halfway through verse 28. May I ask you why you sent for me, Peter says. And so Cornelius answers, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. A man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer. He's remembered your gifts to the poor. Sent to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. And then from here, listen to this. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message that God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And then he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that, this, that, that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So yeah, we could speak today about why bacon is awesome, but the point today is to see that this is a big moment in the history of the church. This is a big moment in the gospel, because this is the first time that the gospel actually goes to the Gentiles. Up until now, the gospel has been primarily for Jewish people. It has, the people have gone out, some of the apostles have gone out and spoke to Samaritans who are kind of like halfway Jewish. And the, the gospel has been spoken to the Ethiopian eunuch, but, but he himself is a proselyte. He's a, he's a convert to Judaism. But it's still a sense of that you have to be somehow connected to the Old Testament and its rules and rituals in order to become a follower of Jesus. The, the thought has still been there that, that, that God saves Jews, but the idea that God would save Gentiles 
that, that's, that's still somewhat of a foreign concept. Now, to be honest, this is only five, six years after the death of Jesus, and this is, this is a fairly radical change. I mean, to change a whole culture in five years is huge. It's that, that, that's actually a very quick thing to do. And here is Peter at the forefront of this whole thing, and at the, at the pointy end of the stick, as it were, and, and he's going, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel to these Gentiles. And yet even Peter is, even, even in him going into a Gentile home, even in him hearing this whole thing of don't call unclean what God calls clean, even in Peter going in and preaching the gospel is surprised. He's not expecting the result because the result is the Spirit of God falls on these people and Peter and everyone are going, what just happened? It's amazing. God has come to the Gentiles as well. And so even in him, even when he starts what he does, I think he's still not prepared for what the outcome and the results will be. So I want us to see a couple of things here this morning in this passage. First of all, to see that God is an impartial God. For thousands of years, it had been assumed that God loved the Jews and no one else. The general assumption of the day, amongst Jewish people anyway, was that if you were not Jewish, then God had created you for one reason and one reason only, to be fuel for the fires of hell. So you and I, if you don't have some Jewish blood in you, that was the assumption that we, we're just fossil fuel. We're, we're, here, we're here to burn. That's our purpose. We're here to keep things warm in the afterlife for others. We, had, we served no other purpose in the world whatsoever. And so the Jewish nation then looked down on all other nations of the world. They, they ended up with a sense of superiority. We're better than everyone else because God loves us. And they somehow got into their heads that God loves us because we're special. God loves us because we're cool. God loves us because we're nice. God loves us because we do all these wonderful things. Even though God had said through the prophets, I chose to love you because I chose to love you. And he even says at one stage, I rescued you not because you are better than the other nations, not because you are bigger, not because you are bolder, not because you are nicer, but because I chose, to, I chose you just because I did for no other good reason at all. And so here's Peter now with this, with this kind of breakthrough moment, his vision of pigs in a blanket and hearing the voice saying, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And Peter has to rethink his prejudices. And he's starting to see that God is an impartial God who shows no favoritism. That God is beyond just one race, one nation, one people group. God is, is, is willing to give his grace to everyone and anyone who comes to him. And like I said, I don't think he's got it fully worked out at the beginning of his sermon, but it kind of hits home at the end. And, and of course, that's, that's great news for us, isn't it? That God is impartial. If, if his salvation was restricted to one nation, we're excluded. If his salvation is restricted to one group of people, tough luck on us. But to know that God is impartial, to know that God does not consider rich or poor, that, that God doesn't have a, spe a special affection for one nation over another. This might you know, cause some people to wobble, but God loves Iraqis just as, he's, as much as he loves Israelis. Because God is impartial, has no favoritism. His good news of grace is freely given to everyone. Everyone. And because of that, his free grace is given to you. Not because you're good, not because you're nice, not because you look awesome in the mirror on a Sunday morning, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, Not because of your nationality, not because of your family, but because God is gracious. That's what gospel means. That's what grace means, that you get it because you don't deserve it. And one of the things that that should cause us to do is to ask the question, how impartial are we? Are there times when we show favoritism? And I'm not talking about favoritism to your children. I completely understand that. Some children are better than others. Isn't that right, Brian? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but beyond that, right, do we show favoritism? Do we show, are we impartial in all that we do, in all that, in every way that we live? And I think often we'll say, oh, yes, we are, and yet do our actions display that? Do we treat one group of people different to others? Do we treat one race, one nationality uh, different to how we treat others? Our God is impartial. 
And then because, Peter says, because God is impartial, and because of his impartiality, the gospel is free for everyone, let me give you the gospel. And Peter then shares the gospel with these Romans. And there are a couple of aspects to the gospel that he, had he, he announces here this morning. Let me outline the gospel once again, because we've been saying for months now that we are gospel-driven, and what lies at the center of everything that we do is we are motivated and driven by the gospel of Jesus. And so we need to keep grasping what that gospel is and how that gospel transforms us. And Peter starts by saying the good news is the good news of peace through Jesus who is Lord. Now, we've got to understand a couple of things here. To start with, Peter is actually contextualizing the gospel. He's putting the words of the gospel in, in a context that these Romans can understand. He's putting the gospel across in a way that they can grasp it and put the gospel into their own words. If he was speaking to Jewish people, he might have spoken about the gospel of righteousness perhaps because righteousness was very important to jewish people perhaps if he was talking to i don't know to to people in england he would talk about the gospel of the kingdom because the kingdom rule britannia is important to the british people right um, so so he's contextualizing the gospel talking about this gospel of peace because one of the things that's important to these roman guys and particularly to cornelius is the idea of pax Romana, not Tax Romana, but Pax Romana. And, and the Pax Romana was just the peace of Rome. And one of the big things that Rome was about was establishing peace throughout the world. And so they would send their armies out to create peace. And I know that sounds oxymoronic, but here's how they do it, right? They would go, they would conquer a bunch of barbarians, and they would then establish Roman laws, Roman customs, and bring about Roman peace to this area of barbarianism. And the barbarians initially would resist and fight, but then go, hang on a sec, this is actually quite cool to live by rules and to be governed by law uh, instead of to be governed by swords and might is right. And so Rome actually did establish peace and pushed out Roman peace throughout the civilized world. And Rome was big about establishing peace and keeping the peace. And one of the reasons that Cornelius... And his Italian regiment are in Judea and in this town of Caesarea is that they are there to keep the peace. They're a peacekeeping force. And so it's all about peace, the peace of Rome, everything to do with peace. Isn't this great? So, so he's, Peter's actually being a little bit political in this. Because he's saying, you're here to bring about peace and um, how's that working out for you? How's that going? Because the Jewish nation were not all excited about being ruled and governed by Rome. Rome brought law and order. Rome brought legislation. Rome brought an end to just this random violence all over the place. And so there's, there's this law and this peace going out. And so Peter says to these Romans, is there perhaps another avenue for peace? Is there something better? Is there, is there someone else who offers a better peace than the peace of Rome? Is there a peace that perhaps comes through a different Lord? They're there to advance peace in the name of, of Caesar. And Peter's saying, let me pronounce to you the good news of peace through Jesus, who is Lord. And so there's a bit of a challenge on Roman sensibilities here. And, and this, this good news of peace, well, it's literally the good news about Irene. And aren't we so glad that Irene is here this morning? It's good news all about you today, Irene. Because um, that's what, right, Irene means peace in Rome, in, 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 in Greek. Um, but it carries with it that sense also that Hebrew word of shalom, that sense of completeness and fullness and wholeness. And so here's Peter coming to the house of Cornelius, the guy who's there to bring peace to Israel, and he says, I've come to tell you about completeness and fullness and wholeness and satisfaction and life and light and joy that is found in Jesus. And that good news of peace is still held out to us. And that good news of peace is still what many of us need to hear because many of us are pursuing peace and are not necessarily finding it. Some of you are, are, are at war. That's often considered to be the opposite of peace, right? You think of Mr. Tolstoy in his book, War and Peace. And so, so we would think about war being the opposite of peace. And some of you, your homes look like a war zone. 
Right? That's why we did a marriage course yesterday, fixed everyone's life. Um, but sometimes our, war, our home looks like war, right? Sometimes there's just war within our own souls. Sometimes we ourselves are at war with ourselves. We battle with our own frustrations, our own temptations, our own anxieties. We feel a sense of war. And the gospel comes to bring peace to where there is war. But war isn't just the only opposite of peace. I think one of the other opposites of peace, you could talk about chaos. Peace versus chaos. And the gospel comes to bring an end to the chaos. We, we live in a rather chaotic world. Again, some of you may live in a chaotic house. <laughs> um, some of us are by nature chaotic people. And the gospel comes to bring peace to the chaos around us. I think the other, one of the other things that the Bible sets out as a kind of an opposite of peace is the idea of labor. I'm not talk, talking now about taking time off work and saying that you can you know, have a few days off. This, although it is a short week this week, isn't it? Take Friday off and get a long weekend. It's nice. Um, but it's, it's not about taking time off work. But how many of us just feel like we're toiling and toiling and toiling and there's no end in sight? And that it's not just the toil of work, but how many of us feel that our, our religion is this ongoing toil that just never comes to an end. And Jesus comes and lifts the burden off because he comes with the gospel bringing peace. But the ultimate thing is that we're, the gospel of peace brings us peace with God because ultimately we're at war with him. Ultimately, our lives without Him are lives of chaos. Ultimately, when we're separated from Him, our life is a life of labor, of trying to do good and behave and be better. And the gospel brings an end to that and says, that's done. The war with God is over. The gospel takes the burdens off because it's a gospel of peace. So Peter, having said that the gospel is a gospel of peace, he then says, here's the three parts to the gospel, and he talks about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is the essence and of, of what the gospel is. The gospel is about Jesus. And Peter says it's about Jesus who came. He was born as a man, but filled with the Spirit of God. And it's interesting for us to think that Jesus is God, and yet is himself driven by the Spirit of God and can't do anything without the Spirit of God. And, and Peter talks about how Jesus then comes and sets people free from oppression, the oppression of the devil. And again, that's a little bit political because the Jews considered the Romans to be colonial oppressors and wanted the Romans gone. And here's Peter talking about Jesus setting you free from oppression. So again, I can feel the Romans that's sitting in here, this Italian regiment, feeling a little uncomfortable and wondering, is this going to turn into some kind of political riot? But Jesus spent his time while he was alive going around the countryside preaching, healing, and as Peter says, setting people free from oppression to evil. That's part of what the gospel is about, that Jesus sets people free from oppression to evil. And that's not to say that every person that Jesus healed was in some way oppressed by the devil. Not every disease has its origins in the devil. Your headache today quite, could quite well be simply because you didn't have enough coffee this morning. That's all it is, and we'll try and fix it for you later. I don't need to cast out demons, I just need to fill you with caffeine. That, that'll do it. Some of you have a stiff neck because you spent too much time crouched in front of the computer yesterday. Um, that's not a, well, maybe the computer is a demon, I don't know. Um, but not just because, just because you're sick doesn't mean that there's a demon involved. But I do sometimes wonder though, I do sometimes wonder if that constant headache you always have has got something to do with your anger. And that perhaps if Jesus would set you free from that anger, perhaps the headache would go? I don't know, just a thought. Perhaps your stiff neck isn't the computer. Perhaps it's just the result of constant ongoing stress that you put yourself under. And I do know this, that some of us sometimes feel the oppression of the devil. I've had a couple of people tell me in the last couple of weeks that they have felt the very real presence of the devil. And you're like, no, no, we want to hear, feel the presence of God. And yet there are times, I think, when people do, really do feel the presence of evil and the oppression of evil. 
And Jesus comes and sets us free from oppression. His gospel lifts the oppression off and frees us in a way that the Romans and the Gentile and the Jews could never fully comprehend because it's not a political freedom that we're looking for. The gospel comes to set us free from oppression. And Jesus again does the same for us. He comes to set us free from the oppression that we find ourselves under, the things that weigh us down. But Peter doesn't just speak about the life of Jesus, he speaks about the death of Jesus. And he tells the Romans that Jesus was murdered, that Jesus was killed, and that he was killed by the Jewish authorities. Peter lays the blame right there. And talks about how Jesus was, was crucified or nailed on, hung on a tree, hanged on a tree. And Jehovah's Witnesses take this passage and they, they go mad with it. And they say, see, Jesus wasn't nailed on a cross. He was hung up on some random avo tree somewhere. Um, and that's not what Peter's saying at all. Peter's making reference to the Old Testament, which Cornelius has been studying and reading. And there's that place in the Old Testament that tells us that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And what Peter is saying, tree, cross, same thing. Each result in this, the curse of God. And he says, this Jesus, who went around healing and setting people free from oppression, is hung on the tree as a curse. And he becomes a curse for you and me. So he talks about the death of Jesus, but then he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is always about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter says, this Jesus, who was crucified, who was hung on a tree, who was considered cursed by God, was raised to life by God. And he's telling these Roman soldiers who know all about death and know all about crucifixion and know what happens to people having been crucified. And he says to them, that guy that was crucified, that was put to death by Roman means, and you all guys, you all know what that looks like because you've, you've seen it. He says that same Jesus came back to life. And so here's Peter speaking to a bunch of Italians, telling them about a dead man who came back to life. And Peter says that results in two things. And here's the kind of the, the, the implication of the gospel. It says, he says it results in two things. Number one, this man that Jesus raised from the dead stands as your judge. He stands as your judge and mine. If he had died and stayed dead, oh well. But the fact that he's died under the curse of God and has now been raised to life by God, guess what? He gets to stand in judgment over all of you. And he will judge all people of the, old, the whole world one day. And Cornelius is going to stand in judgment of you and of what you've done and of your whole Italian regiment and all the things that you guys have done and participated in. And you've got to think again that Cornelius is there to kind of execute the judgments of Rome. That's what he's there for. He's in this administrative center to do what Rome has sent him to do and to act as a bit of a policeman and more than that, to perhaps act as a judge and say, yep, you're guilty, you're going to go to jail. And now Peter, Peter says, you think you're in charge here? But you need to know that there is a greater judge and that he will judge all people. He's going to judge you. He's going to judge you for what you're doing. And the reality is that that hasn't changed, that Jesus still will judge the world and that Jesus will judge you and me. Every human being will one day have to answer to him. Every human being will have to give account to him for our actions and our attitudes and our thoughts and our behaviors. And I know that you don't like the idea of being judged, but he will stand in judgment over us. And I know that some of you are thinking, I'll be okay. I don't need to worry. He'll weigh my actions and find that I'm actually a pretty good guy. I'm a nice person. I eat organic food. I only do the farm, the free range stuff. I only buy, what's it called? That nice coffee where you, you know, um, free trade. That's it. I only drink free trade coffee. You know, I'm that guy. I'm, a, I'm one of the good ones. But we know that that's not how it works, right? That Jesus will judge the whole world. And that should make us shudder for a moment. Because not one action, not one thought will go unpunished. And he's not weighing it up going, ah, good, bad. Uh -uh. He's looking at our actions and saying, bad, 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 bad. Yeah, a little bit of good, but that's not going to outweigh anything. Bad, 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 bad. And he sees us in our rebellion against him. And we read in the book of Romans that God's wrath is already being poured out on the world to some degree. And his wrath is not being poured out on us in the form of floods 
Okay? The, the rain is not God's judgment on us in some strange way. Paul, Paul never says that. In, in Romans chapter 1, he says this, we know that the wrath of God is on us because people lose all moral restraint. That's how we know the wrath of God is here. When God says, I'm not going to restrain you anymore, I'm going to let you carry on with what you want to do. And in fact, when you start applauding the things that God disapproves of, then you know that the wrath of God is really revealed. And here we are in Pride Month, right? Let's celebrate the rainbow, the symbol of, of God's covenant to not punish the world is used as a symbol to, I don't know, throw it in God's face. And the wrath of God is not some bit of rain somewhere. And, and elsewhere in the scriptures, elsewhere in the New Testament, Peter and Paul will both say the same sort of thing, that we'll be judged for, not, not just for our acts of murder and violence and rape and whatever else, but we'll be acting our, judged on our acts of greed. Any of you eaten too many biscuits? More than you should have? I had two muffins yesterday. And then I finished a third one because it was just sitting there. Right? How many of us eat more than we should? How many, how many of us overindulge in things that we really shouldn't? How many of us are selfish sometimes? Because we're told that he will judge those who are selfish. Our greed, our, our lust, our anger. And, and, and the, the result is that we all stand condemned before the judge of the world. But Peter says that's not the only part of the gospel. It's not just that Jesus will judge, but he says here's the second part of the gospel. Here's the second implication of him rising from the dead, that he will forgive the sins of all those who come in faith to him. And so I've laid it out for you that you're going to be judged, but here's the thing, if you come in faith to Jesus... The judgment passes over you, and you will not be condemned. You will not be judged. Instead, there is forgiveness and mercy. There's a great old, old, old not an illustration picture that goes back to the guys who were crossing America, the Great Plains in the 18-whatevers. Um, and there, there's a whole bunch of them on their, their wagons and their cowboys and, you know, doing their thing, riding across. And, and the guys at the back shout out, there's a fire coming across the plains and it's sweeping across, across. It's a massive fire like, like what's going on down in the Cape at the moment in Heldeberg, right? This huge fire. And everyone's like, what are we going to do? We're going to be engulfed by the flames. And the, the dads in the front, um, the front riders, they grab torches and light fires in front of them. And the kids start screaming, oh, what are you doing? Now we're surrounded by flames, we're going to die. And of course the dads in front know what they're doing. And they say, no guys, the fire can't burn where it is already burnt. And they ride on into the bit that's burnt in front of them and the fire doesn't get them. And there's a sense of that in what Jesus does, that he's become the curse for us and the wrath of God has burnt on him. And when we step into that, the fire no longer reaches us. And judgment passes over us because it's fallen on him. And so you can spend some moments this morning pondering the things that you've done wrong. And, and you might even come up with, a, well, I'm not a bad person. But ultimately, remember, it's not about whether you're a good or a bad person in comparison to me. But whether or not you're a good, a good person in comparison to Jesus. And we all fail that one. But if we come to him in faith, there is forgiveness of sins. And so think of the very worst thing that you've done, the very worst thing that you've said, the most hurtful comment you've ever made, the, the greatest wound that you've inflicted in someone. And to know this, that God in Jesus has forgiven you of that sin. And what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to pause our sermon for a moment this morning. Um, I'm not finished preaching yet. Sorry, I know. Um, but we're going to pause it for a moment to reflect, because we're having communion this morning. I thought this would be a good time to do communion. To consider both the judgment and the forgiveness of Jesus. We talked about this, I think, in our home group on Wednesday night. How in the Bible there's, there's often a reference to two cups in the Bible. There's the, the cup of God's wrath. In the Old Testament, we're taught, we read often about the cup of God's wrath and that you drink the cup of God's wrath and you will stagger and fall. Revelation speaks about the bowl of God's wrath and the nations will drink of it. And, and the wrath of God comes. And, and Jesus in the garden going, Lord, I don't want to drink the cup. And the cup that Jesus is drinking is the cup of God's wrath. 
But there's another cup in the scriptures. It's the cup of salvation. It's the cup of freedom given in him. And that's the cup that you and I want to drink from. And this morning we share communion and we're going to have tiny little cups filled with grape juice. And that, that, that cup of grape juice can, will represent either of two things. You're either drinking on yourself the cup of God's wrath and saying, I don't need Jesus. I'm okay myself. I'm going to drink and I'll withstand the wrath of God. I'll be fine. Or you can drink in celebration a cup of his salvation and go, he has forgiven me. And I drink in thankfulness for what he has given. And so when you eat and drink this morning, be those thoughts in your mind. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, listen, if, if you don't follow Jesus, if you're not one of his, rather don't drink the cup because you don't want to drink the wrath of God upon yourself. Paul says, let it go by. So if you're not a Christian this morning, rather let it go by. No one's going to judge you, well, other than Jesus. <laughs> but no one here is. But if you, if you found forgiveness in him, then drink with celebration this morning from the cup of his forgiveness. So I'm going to spring this in a couple of guys this morning. I'm going to ask Mark and Ivan if you guys would come and if you would pass the bread around in a moment. And then I'm going to ask, who else shall I ask? I'll ask Jason and I'll ask Damon if you guys will come and pass the grape juice around. Okay, Jason will come and do the bread. Ivan will do the grape juice. All right. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your goodness and grace to us. And for us, Lord, to recognize this morning that Jesus stands in judgment and that Jesus will condemn the world and that Jesus stands in judgment to some extent even over us. And we recognize that we are worthy of judgment, that we deserve wrath. For Lord, we have failed you and we have fallen short and we, we, we spent many years of our lives rejecting and resisting you and your word. And yet, because of the grace and the mercy of the good news of the gospel of peace, we find forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I thank you this morning that you have forgiven me. That you have forgiven me of words spoken, of attitudes lived out. And that I can drink this morning the cup of salvation and celebrate that our God, my God, has forgiven me, that wrath has fallen on Jesus. Judgment has come on him. And I have been set free. And so Lord, this morning, as we eat, as we drink, may we be reminded of the judgment that has passed and the forgiveness that has been given. In Jesus' name. Thanks, guys. Mark, Jason. So the night he was betrayed, our Lord took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. So when the bread comes, take it and eat it. It's a celebration of the fact that Christ has forgiven you. And then Ivan and Damon, don't you guys come up to the front? In the same way after the meal, the Lord took the cup and said, Take and drink, this is the cup of salvation given for you. My blood and you come. Take and drink.
exhausted from your own field trips. Lord Jesus, again, just thank you for mercy, grace, and forgiveness that is found in your name. While Peter was still preaching, something happens. And the Spirit of God is poured out upon this gathering. And it's like the Spirit of God has been hovering, waiting and he just can't wait any longer. It's like, come on, Peter, wrap this up. Finish up the sermon because it's time, right? So the Holy Spirit is hovering. Peter's rambling on, much like your pastor often does, rambling on about stuff and just can't wrap it up, just can't find the finish, can't find the end, can't, doesn't quite know. And, and the Spirit of God is so eager, he just says, Peter, I can't wait anymore. Sorry. <laughs> and the Spirit of God comes upon these Gentiles. And what, what's happened here? Is that God is saying, listen man, the good news is for the Gentiles too. This is the moment that shocks Peter and the other disciples. They're like, what? We did not expect this. I don't know what they were expecting. I don't know whether they were still thinking somehow that Cornelius was going to have to become Jewish first and do the whole circumcision thing. I don't know. They were not, we're told, they, they were shocked and amazed, surprised, and stunned that the Spirit of God would actually come to the Gentiles. This is unheard of. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God comes on occasional Jewish people here and there. Comes upon David, comes upon Saul, comes upon the, the judges and the prophets and a few other guys now and then. In the New Testament, we've seen that the Holy Spirit has come upon the early church and the Spirit has been given to all who believe in Him. And now, now He's given freely to the Gentiles as well. And God, God is doing something here, not, not to say this is how it's always going to happen, but just saying, can you understand that the gospel goes beyond just a bunch of Jews? It goes beyond just one nation. That the gospel is for the Gentiles too. And this becomes the birth, in some senses, of the Gentile church. And you and I trace our heritage back to this to this moment. What's amazing is this, that God would send his spirit to you. I mean, just conceptualize this for a moment, right? The spirit of God is God himself. The spirit of God in the Old Testament would inhabit something like the temple, this magnificent building. The spirit of God in the Old Testament would inhabit or come upon certain very special people, someone like King David. And I mean, just, <coughs> just take a look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> and God would come and live in you. Isn't that amazing? In the Old Testament, God reveals himself by the Spirit of God in the tabernacle, the Spirit of God in the temple. In the New Testament, God reveals himself in Jesus. Jesus becomes the tabernacle, the place, the presence of God. And now, the presence of God, where is the presence of God? St. Paul's Basilica in, uh, in was it St. Peter's? St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, right? That's where the Spirit of God lives, surely. Huh? Um, or, or, or St. Paul's in London, perhaps, or, or, or maybe in the Jesus Dome down in Durban, in the same sort of shape. No, the Spirit of God lives in you. The presence of God rests in you. The Spirit of God comes and dwells in all those who turn in faith to Jesus and find in Him forgiveness of sins. And so the good news of the gospel comes to us. And God gives the gift of tongues to these people here. Again, not to say that everyone will get the gift of tongues, but here what he's doing is in a sense undoing what happened at Babel. The Tower of Babel, God curses the people and scatters them through different languages. 
And now God's saying, we're all being brought back together. We're being united and brought back together under one, under one God, one nation, the nation of the church, the kingdom of God itself. So folk, here's the gospel, the good news this morning. The good news starts with an impartial God. It is a good news of peace because he brings peace to the chaos and the war within. It's good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the good news of forgiveness of sins in him and the free gift of his spirit upon you, within you, for the glory of God among the nations. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we want to thank you once more for the gift of the gospel of salvation. That, Lord, there is forgiveness in your name. That you bring us peace. And that you fill us with your spirit. And Lord, as we go into this week, may we be so aware of the fact that the, that the very essence of God dwells within us by your spirit. Lord, may it be your spirit that controls us. May it be your spirit that leads us. May it be your spirit that speaks through us. May we live lives driven by the gospel that would put you and your glory on display in the nations. And Lord, I would pray for anyone this morning who's hearing the gospel but has not yet fully grasped or understood the gospel, that by your spirit you would melt their hearts Bring them forgiveness. Draw them into your kingdom. And now, Lord, may we go with your grace, with your mercy, knowing your presence, your love, your face shining and smiling upon us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, go get you a fix of caffeine. Fix that headache.